Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Art of Aging, which is part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from Ruth Frost Parker Center and United Church Homes. On this show, we look at what it means to age in America and in other places around the world with positive and empowering conversations that challenge, encourage, and inspire anyone anywhere to age with abundance. Our guest today is Sarah Thomas. And Sarah, if she's not one, if she's not one of the better known, is certainly one of the most respected players in the VC space when it comes to age tech. Sarah serves as a global aging expert, advising startups, large corporations, and investors with over 20 years dedicated to transforming the aging experience. She yeah. is CEO of the multinational staff hosting company, Meztal, and CEO of the consulting firm, Delight by Design, creating age-inclusive products, brands, spaces, and experiences that delight the consumer at every age. She has served as executive in residence at Aging 2.0 and currently serves as principal fellow in the Nexus Insights firm for aging and transformation and mentor to the Techstars Longevity Accelerator. And what a great program that is co-founder of Age Tech News and sits as a venture partner to both Age Tech Capital and Third Act Ventures. And last but not least, she is a trained occupational therapist and certainly has given her, which certainly has given you some important perspective on the role of function, functional limitation, and its associated with, association with wellness. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Mike. Great. Sarah, I want to start with a question that we ask a lot of people on this podcast. I mean, you could be doing a lot with your talents and put that into a lot of areas. Why are you so passionate about the world of aging and age tech? I've really always been committed to older adults, always. I mean, my best friends when I was nine years old was 87, and I wanted to spend more time with him than anyone who was probably age appropriate, but he was just you know, an awesome guy with great wisdom and great history and a Holocaust survivor and the first season ticket holder of the Celtics in Boston with the parquet floor. I mean, why would you not want to spend time with people who just have are much more interesting than your peer group? I think my affinity towards older adults has just always been there and then committed to also improving their lives. And then I realized that our perception of aging is just bias and kind of looking at global aging perspective and how can we make a change in how we view our own aging process. And as an occupational therapist, always just committed to uh, changing how we view our, our own perception of our aging experience, as well as how we create systems and products and process and solutions around us, often with the use of technology to in prove how we age and how our communities age. So I've been committed to the age tech sector for over 20 years and certainly to the aging experience for longer than that. But it's just, a, it's my life passion. I wouldn't even call it work. It's just life purpose. And so I think just finding all of the roles that I can make the greatest impact around aging and the use of technology to improve our aging experience is it's pretty much why I'm staying in this industry forever. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you wear a lot of different hats and I think that there's a lot of, I mean, just starting from the foundational experience when you were young and then just, you know, it, it is, I mean, did occupational therapy really kind of open your eyes? Is that a framework for how you look at the world of age tech or is it broader than that? Have you kind of learned a broader sense of, of the world or, or what sort of elements do you bring into that work? Well, 
I would say that my background as an occupational therapist, if you think of what an OT foundation really is, it's a professional problem solver that looks at everything from the psychosocial perspective, the cognitive, the mental health and well-being, the frames of reference that people live in. So we've been talking about SDOH and, and all of the impact of environment and roles on people, you know, for the entirety of our industry. And whether we're helping someone physically recover to a role that they want to achieve or whether it's looking at something, you know, from a cognitive or a social perspective, it positions me and my lens really well as really from a personal problem solver to a professional problem solver very quickly. The OT lens for me is always with me with all of the roles and the hats that I wear because I want to meet someone where they're at, help them to find their intrinsic motivation and their goals and help them to achieve their goals in some way. That's either, you know, a point of recovery where they can consider themselves successful in this goal attainment, or it's compensatory strategies or adapting the task or adapting the environment. And if you think of that lens, I can do the same for products with product development and UI and UX and understanding that universal design and the human-centered design around a product development, which I, I do within my consulting, where I bring that into a, a company and you analyze where a startup's at and you say, okay, where do you want to go? You know, what's your exit strategy? How are we funding you? How are we getting you where you want to go? And setting those goals is really something that I, you know, learned, yes, through occupational therapy, but extends greater into systems change and looking at the global ecosystem development. And all of that is also through the lens of kind of that professional problem solver and helping people to obtain their goals. So I, I keep that with me wherever I, wherever I am. Yeah. And, it, and I want to really unpack, you know, the venture uh, capital part of your, your work, you know, as we continue, but it just strikes me that, you know, with all the talk that's going on around holistic models of care, you know, patient centered care, incentivize managed care models where you have goals and all that. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, this has been lying in plain sight, you know, for a long time. And finally, it's not like it wasn't valuable before, but everyone's sort of putting their hands to their heads and saying, oh my goodness, you know, this, this is where a lot of value can lie, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we've been, I mean, we've known it, but it's, you've got to change it at an individual level and the mindset shift needs to happen. But then we also need to invest resources and time into the product change, the solutions change, and really impact the outcomes through through systems change. Exactly. So let's just get into the, I mean, I know that you're very popular with the HDEC community because, you know, you are uh, tied to funding with your, as your role as a venture capitalist. But I think it's for our listeners, I think they would appreciate just a, just an understanding of really what stages of investment look like because you know i admire entrepreneurs and never had the courage to kind of launch something myself but we hear all these things about pre-seed rounds angel all the rest of it and is there kind of a little bit of a primer that you can give us on those stages and really just how vcs generally work sure so kind of 
people ask all the time, you know, they have this great idea, but how do they bring it to a product? And from that product, how do they make sure the market needs it and wants it? And, and there's a, a market for it. And then how do you expand into that growth phase? And then what's your exit strategy? Are you really running a small business or are you looking at taking on additional capital to grow either nationally or internationally or have an exit and be acquired by another organization that could maybe fold in your own startup and the mission that you initially started with? Could we consolidate some of these solutions so there's a more comprehensive solution? Or then, of course, there's the IPO and are, are you actually looking for or an exit to go public? And there's this path and you might not know initially when you're starting with the idea or of the product or service, but you should have a roadmap for how are you going to get to where you want to go. And it's fine to not have a startup that's venture backed. You can, you know, just continue to grow at the pace of your revenue. And, and that it may not be the path, but if you are going to go the VC route, you know, you and I have spoken at length about this, Mike, in order to be venture backable, you really need to look at those phases and where you fit in. So if you're looking at seed stage, it's really the initial phase, you know, you might be taking friends, and family round or friends from, you're, you know, you're bootstrapping it with your own finances or you're asking friends or family or angel investors to come in on this idea of yours so you can develop it. It's, you might do some market research, you might do some product development, but it's really early stage. It, and seed stage also has often precede an angel where you're just seeking funding, this either micro venture or you know, angel investors just to start to build out that product, build a team around it. Who are your founders? Maybe prove the market actually needs it. Get that first test of the market demand before you go into a series A. So when you start to look at that series A stage, the startup really has to prove out that business model already before you're venture backable at that phase. And then they're going to get additional funding, often millions of dollars at that point, to really help the company grow and expand into the market and meet those market demands you've already proven out. Then you'll get to the next kind of juncture. Are you going to take on a series B? Now this at this point is often, you know, really increasing your market share. You've been growing tremendously, but you want to consider maybe international expansion or increase your market size or additional verticals. This is a next phase. But Series C and beyond, these rounds can be much larger. You're looking at venture capital or private equity firms or even hedge funds at that point when you're starting to look at that much, much larger scale and you're on a path for either rapid growth or IPO. And so most of the companies that we're working with at this phase are usually in that seed stage to Series A. At Third Act Ventures, we look mostly at seed stage. We take early bets. We love founders who have a passion project that they're working on, but are committed to bringing something powerful and inspiring to the market. And we look across the continuum of aging and age tech, which we could get into as well, because everyone's a little interested in what that definition is, I think. And then at age tech capital, we're raising a significant fund so that we can make about come in on the series a and that's going to be a, we're shooting for a 250 million dollar fund there so it's going to be a little bit later stage but it's lovely to look at the full continuum of these startups from idea and inception to to exit and so we stay really close to the full ecosystem so that we can compare 
where the team is, where the product is, and where the market needs are. And I love the fact that you're, you, you may even have the chance to kind of bridge one from the other as you find someone from very early stage and then migrate them and graduate them into uh, another, you know, VC that may be prepared to take them a little bit further with their growth, you know. And, and I think that, you know, and I, I think it's just it, it, everyone is so mission oriented in the state. So it's in this area, everyone's got someone's good feeling. And importantly, you know, your the business model for venture capital is you are in return for this investment, you are taking equity in these companies. So I think that for aspiring entrepreneurs out there, you know, for especially at the early stage, the choice of who you work with really doesn't just come down to the money, right? It, it, what other things? What other things do VCs do to to, to support uh, emerging organizations? Yeah, so so a big part um, is understanding who you're taking money from. You you should like your venture partners and your capital providers as much as they have faith in you. Um, you have to have faith that they're uh, in this for the right reasons, that if they're going to take a board seat, that you want to be hearing their direction, that you the management style and the leadership style drives with yours because you will be partners as you're bringing this um, company to market. One thing also is if you're looking at a, a firm, you know, I'm a venture partner for a reason. I bring over 20 years of age tech experience and I can open doors and I can help to support from the advisory capacity. So look to see also, are you working with firms that bring people on that have the subject matter expertise, that have the strategic alignment with what you actually need, that have a history in this market? And if you just need money and you don't need the support or the strategic value, then you, of course there's other vehicles, but you know, did they only come from maybe health tech or fintech, or are they only coming from the financial side of things and not necessarily a strategic partner that can open doors or, or truly understand navigating a very complex market, which can be the age tech space, especially if you're looking at senior living or senior care, or even beyond that, if you're going to take a direct to consumer approach with a mature consumer, do they have experience with that? So you want to interview them as much as they're interviewing you. Right, right, right. And I think on your side, I mean, you know, I, I would guess that in the course of a month, you have at least one company coming to you and saying, hey, Sarah, I've got a great idea. I'd love, I'd love for you to invest in me, right? I think we've been talking for 14 minutes and I guarantee you within the 14 minutes, I have a new one, not in a month, in about a, every hour, there's a new one. <laughs> so let's talk about it from you and your personal perspective, you know, and it, what makes a project investable to you or rather, you know, if, if somebody sends you something, there might be some deal breakers right from the start. So if somebody is pitching you, what do you like to see and what are, what kind of raises an exclamation point for you? or not in a good way. <laughs> sure, yeah. um, well, a couple of things. One, you know, we're, I, in particular myself, I want to make global impact on, on our aging experience and how we all not only perceive but experience aging. So the impact has to be there. For me, it also has to have a passionate founder who is motivated, not just do not lead by telling me that over 10,000 people turn 65 every day because you haven't done your research to know my background, to know I know those numbers, you know, and, and, and the impact of those numbers. But it also means to me that you not only didn't do research on who we are and who I am and, and what we invest in, 
but you also are so motivated by the numbers that you are maybe not driven enough by the passion of impact. And I want to make an impact with anything that we're investing in. So me personally, it has to be a strong founder that's passionate about making a change in the world around aging. The product has to be you know, strong as well. And certainly that the market has to need it, not just something that is coming out of a, a tech founder that sees a widget and sees how this widget could be applied to a new vertical. That doesn't interest me. Seeing a major market need, seeing a major human impact story, and then finding and building and creating solutions that can fill that gap. That's more what I'm looking for. So good team, solid founder, good product market fit, and do your research on who you're meeting with, but also do research on the market and the competitors. I almost will always throw the deck away immediately and not take the call if it says there are zero competitors, because I don't think you've done your research if you think there's nothing out there there that compares to what you do. It might be different. You might have a differentiator. You might have the next unicorn, and I can get behind that. Trust me, we do. We want to. However, understanding what has come before and what has failed and how you're going to do something different or what exists and where the gap is still shows that there's something in the market that needs improvement, and you should be the one to do that. But if you tell me there's nothing, I don't think you've done your research or know the space enough. And it doesn't impress me to lead with that. So I would say on that, it's probably my personal non-starter. <laughs> well, that's important. I mean, and just to unpack that a little bit, what goes through my mind is, first of all, you know, the, the, this concept of passion, because, you know, we can all see the age wave, you know, or the age opportunity. We all see this pig in the python with the baby boomers. We all see this greater longevity. And so it's one of those kind of rare spaces that in general, you kind of think, that in the future, people are going to need more of this type of stuff than that type of stuff, right? So just leading with that alone is not going to get you. You want somebody that, that, that's in it for a sustainable, I guess passion means sustainability to you, right? Through, through good times yeah, and, and, and And impact, not just financial gain. So if they're coming from a different sector and they think, oh, I see the dollar signs when I see how many people turn 65, hey, you need a financial you need a revenue generating business model. We're investing in returns, but I want to see that you want to make a difference in the world and that there's an impact to be made with the product or service you're bringing to market. And so uh, the passion to me needs to come twofold. Yes, to build a strong business with financial returns, but around the impact on the human experience that you're going to make. Yeah, yeah, and I want to like also just just dive into this aspect of sole founders and founders that may come to you with a team. And do you work? How how important is having a team or having people ready to work with you on this project as as they come to you for to, to pitch? It's really important for me to have the team well rounded, and I am not naive to the fact that you can't afford too many team members right away. And so at least identifying your gaps and what your target needs are for advisory board members or, you know, mentors that can come on to bring you where you need to go. I had a startup come the other day that has, has this great idea around using AI, which we hear every second of the day and using AI <laughs> for, <laughs> around workforce enhancement and efficiency and improvement of workforce 
through through charting. And I totally understand that. However, if you don't have a single healthcare professional, a single clinician somewhere, not just engineers, somewhere on the advisory board or working with you on the workflows, then you're building a widget that's not sensitive to the human experience and what you're trying to impact or who you're trying to impact. And so it's making sure if you don't have, if you have technical founders, but you don't have someone used to commercialization, bringing, recognizing that need, bringing someone in, if you are just passionate and you know you're going to be the best CEO possible because you're never going to give up. I will love that tenacity, but understanding where your shortcomings are and building a team around you or knowing that's where the funding is going to be applied so that you can build a team around you. It's really important to know you can't do this alone. This is a team effort all around to bring these products to market. And you know, this is something else that comes to my head right now regarding team. And, and this goes back to this element of human-centered design that you had led off with. How often do you see that the companies that pitch you have people who, if, they're, if they aim to serve people with, for, with a problem or opportunity, let's say it's a functional limitation or, or another condition that they aim to better support, how often do you see that those people are on the advisory board that those people are, are involved with the product creation, you know, because I think that's something that's kind of a, we have seen in the past that people put these things out here yet have not spent enough time with falling in love with that problem. But even at the next level, bringing those people into the decision-making with the company, what sort of trends are you seeing there? Is, is, they, is, the, is, is that increasing, do you think, that co-creation or at least bringing people into the company itself? I think so. I hope so. But I think so. <laughs> you know, you can tell when a product has not at all been reviewed by someone who needs to utilize and use the product. And those, they don't succeed as well as those who have human-centered design with each stakeholder group at the table at some point in the process. Whether that's beta testing, whether that's just feedback in user groups, whether that's someone within your team at the core who has that experience or who, who has that perspective, or if you're bringing an advisory board member that can help to, to bring that perspective. There has to be representation of those who you're trying to impact from every stakeholder group. And in age tech, it's interesting because, you know, because we might have had a grandparent who fell, we think we know everything about falls. But do we actually have, depending on who you're selling to or who the end user is, is the person who's going to be a part of this, maybe who could experience the fall, do they want to wear what you are giving to them? Will they be seen with the, what you're giving to them? Will they have access to the data of what comes from this, the solution? Who does have access to the data? Is the family caregiver involved? Is the paid caregiver involved? Or community that maybe somebody resides involved? Where is the data flow going? And have you touched all of those points in the development? And they don't need to be hired by you on the core team, but there certainly needs to be opportunities for piloting with truly meaningful feedback so that, that product can truly be applicable and sensitive to the communities that they're serving. Yeah. And, you know, I, and, and we unpacked this a little bit when we talked with uh, Andy Miller from the AARP Age Tech Collaborative on an earlier podcast. But I think one of the one of the, the, the joyous things about the age tech space is that many of the founders are compelled to. To create solutions because they see them 
many problems we have with long-term care in this country because of their personal experience, either themselves or a loved one. And they sort of carry that view of that experience with the loved one into the, the development of the solution. And, and that's great. And it drives so much passion. But, you know, in that case, you know, we would advise, you know, you, we have a human-centered design program at United Church Homes here. And we have a customer investigation module and it's titled, Your Cousin is Not Your Audience. So even though you have this close personal experience with, it's just one experience, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's great. I know your program is, is really inspiring and others should adopt ones like it because it's true. We have our own perspective, but it, we're often too close to home and it's very personal and it's just one unique situation. You know, there, we have to look at the industry trends, look at the greater influence of those who have less access to resources and those who are going to be impacted in a different way than you experienced your own maybe family or friend connection, the, the personal story. So I, I do think we're seeing more of that. Also, they need access. So they need companies like yours who do embrace you know, entrepreneur in residence programs or startup uh, incubation or help feedback with support groups. We, d- we do need to provide that feedback, but they need to seek it. So that it, it's a partnership for the, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So we are recording this in October of 2023. I'd like to timestamp that because everything lives forever on the internet, right? So thinking of where we are in October of 2023 and the age tech sector, what are you particularly fascinated by right now when you're looking at new solutions in age tech? What's really, what are you really curious about? So I think it's worth first talking about age tech for a second. So for me, age tech is really anything that helps improve our aging experience. And that could be something that's wellness related and prevention related at a younger age food as medicine, nutrition, environmental impact of the places that we live and the products that we experience and off gases and lighting and sleep and all of the things that are part of our overall health and wellness journey. And that impact our cellular degeneration and our aging in in a health span rather than just a lifespan. And so looking at that, and, and well, the wellness journey. And sure, it could be products that fall within aging in place, home modification, keep, keeping people in community longer it, with the resources brought to them or, or accessible to them with a tech-enabled solution. Or yes, senior living and senior care certainly add a whole other community opportunity and a sales channel for some of these products and services, but it's only a piece of that continuum. And sometimes I know our audiences might think of senior living for sure and senior care, but this age tech for me really spans across this continuum of aging and products. So how are we looking at fintech and where it crosses over into age tech. So are we prepared for adding decades longer to our lifespan in a way that designs meaningful opportunities for purposeful engagement in society? Are we taking on lifelong learning opportunities to have a a new career or a new role within community or within other people um, around us, surrounding us with new opportunities for growth and development? Are we, do we have new long-term insurance 
products or caregiver insurance products. Look at this caregiver economy. And we are all going to either care for someone or be cared for at some point in our life. And so how do we do this? And we learned a lot during the pandemic about some of the struggles and inadequacies of our system to support caregivers who have to take time off from work or leave their career or take a sabbatical to care for someone they love. And then are we supporting them with replacement pay and or new opportunities to rejoin the workforce? The staffing crisis across the care continuum, are we augmenting or automating some of the workforce and processes to support that caregiver crisis or shortage? Are we looking at end of life planning? Are we planning appropriately for how we want our legacy planning to be there or our end of life wishes to be present and considered or our legacy creation. So it's a long continuum. And I think when people think age tech, sometimes they have, again, back to that one cousin or that one experience, and they think of age tech into one area. And for me, it's across this continuum. So what excites me is elevating all of those categories. And I took, you know, a few minutes longer than most to say the word AI. Um, but I, I <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, I was actually, I had a little stopwatch here, Sarah. Yeah. We all have bets at this point. How long is it going to be before the startup just pitches AI to us? And they often don't even know what that means. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, we'd be remiss to not talk about the, the absolute progression of what is available to us right now because of this machine learning and, you know, because of this generative artificial intelligence that's just growing so fast. I was on with the startup today, right before this actually, that has 16,000 pages of content that is uploaded in real time and upgraded and changed in real time within four hours in a day. We could never do that before. You would update content and keep it accurate in real time, maybe quarterly, maybe annually, and take a huge team to do it. And now technology can enhance that and support that. There, We just have so many resources at our fingertips to finally improve predictive nature of how we use data and information, to finally have access to not just, not just reactive protocols to things, but actually proactive using much more predictive uh, nature because of the technology enhancement. So that's exciting to me. How do we create better efficiencies? How do we create better outcomes? often with the integration of now new technology at our fingertips. And I think you just shared two pieces of good news with us, quite frankly. The first is that, you know, we are heading into a world where we will expect to have not only more longevity, but more years that are healthy. And when you think about having an extra 20 or 25 years of, let's say, productive work, you know, you can productively work or productively enjoy or whatever, I mean, that's going to really kind of, you know, open up a whole new definition of what it means to age in your 70s and 80s. And I think that's really compelling, you know, things that are not just, you know, viewing you as an inevitable, you know, a, there's an inevitable, you know, to support you in an inevitable moments of failure, but more about that sustainability. I find that very hopeful. And the other thing that, and I think this reflects back to your history with an occupational therapy, where if you're looking at occupational, you basically said you're a professional problem solver. And then you listed off just so many different factors that you look at that, you know, because, you know, you can draw up a plan for somebody, but they have to engage, they have to be, you know, 
all of these different things. And so I think what OT and PTs deal with is complexity. And what AI, I think, is right now kind of good at is taking lots of different inputs and kind of organizing and trying to make sense out of them, right? Yeah. And so as most professions will be impacted and some replaced, you know, I welcome the replacement of some of these complex task analysis that OTs are great at and putting that in through ChatGPT and these other models so that they can help to distill that into something useful and usable for the consumer, for us to improve our processes, to improve our health delivery, our models of care, our models of hospitality, to elevate customer service, and just to elevate the human experience overall. Technology absolutely is going to help with all facets of that. I don't believe the world is going to be covered in paperclip factories in, in five years' time. I've got a lot of hope around AI. Uh, and, and it just keeps growing and growing. So again, October of 2023, and I salute our robot masters if you're listening to this at some point in the future, and you actually have taken over AI. Okay, so dangerous question here. What do you think? And this is me asking. This is not you asking. This is me asking. You're getting an email, you get a pitch, and it's like, oh my gosh. And this is entirely you, I know. Oh my, you know, because you're, oh no, I can't see another one of these things. What do you think has been over? I know you don't do that. What do you think has been overdone in age tech right now, if anything? I don't know that anything has been overdone because I don't think that we have come up with the end-all, be-all solution for any category to cure and remove all problems, even problem areas. I will say that there are trendsetters that set whether, you know, they set out solutions to do something and they make us think differently about what's possible. And so there are some front runners that are absolutely amazing, for instance, in remote patient monitoring. And then there's a thousand other remote patient monitoring companies after. Um, There's some front runners in digital rehabilitation or virtual telehealth. I mean, if you go to the American American Telemedicine Association, you will see many of the same. What is going to differentiate the solution that you bring to market from others? Is it regional? Is it specific for a a certain demographic? Is it culturally sensitive to a certain area or or underserved population? Does it have more data, greater interoperability? Does it have more uh, predictive nature? What is it that's going to differentiate that's out there? So one thing that I would say to your question, why it's maybe dangerous, it's dangerous because I, I sit on a board of one of these types of companies. I have multiple that I integrate with my senior living providers and I, I recommend all of the time around falls prediction and falls prevention. But I want to give this as an example because I do also see someone who's in a tech class or in a lab or sees a new tech that they learn about or is an engineer And I would say in the last three months alone, I've had five or six pitches of new companies wanting to come into the market for false prediction, false capture, false prevention. And they really just start with false identification. Someone's on the floor, they notify you. But the problem is they're coming from, I found tech that determined that someone fell 
or position in space. And I want to use that tech and I want to sell you that tech. And that's widget driven to me. That's I have a tech and I'm going to go find a problem area I can apply it to. And I don't, those pitches don't resonate with me. I also had, you know, I led global innovation for Genesis Healthcare for years, publicly traded company at the time, branched into China so that we were the largest post-acute care provider in the world at the time with our innovation center that I designed and did a lot of pilots, had a lot of pitches specifically for Genesis. And how many people 10 years ago now would come to me, don't you care about songs? That was their pitch, yelling at me, saying we don't care about the people who live with us, we care for because we have so many falls, we must not care about the falls. And they're not necessarily considering, okay, how about all of the pre the prevention preventative measures we've already put in place? How about all of the, the factors, whether it's staffing, behaviors, uh, autonomy, and allowing for independence and choice? You know, we can't restrain people. What are we supposed to, nor do we want to, but, you know, that th these environments, how are we creating a better environment to allow for a safer existence? You know, absolutely, we care about falls. But if you're selling me something and I can't act on the data that's coming to me, you're putting me at greater risk by having that data if I have no means to act on it. And so you're not considering the end user. Yes, you might be considering the older adult, and we should but you're not considering those who are receiving the alerts or the data that comes from it. And is it coming to us in a way that we can react fast enough to improve the quality of life, reduce the risk of falls, or are you just giving us something that's punitive and puts us at legal risk? And so some of these companies who have a widget have an idea of what tech can do, but don't understand the problem areas. That's where the pitch comes at me wrong. And so I say enough, I've heard enough of these companies. I've heard enough, but it's the source. It's not the solution. I absolutely think there's a lot of room and space to grow in falls prediction, prevention, improvement of, of mobility and safety. I So the category is not, we haven't perfected it yet. Haven't eliminated it yet. So I'm all for people coming into the market. But what I am tired of is the technology leading the discussion and technology leading the solution as opposed to the problem area defining the market need and then the technology coming to solve that market need. And so that's, of course, the long version of it. But I, I think it's not a category that I'm tired of seeing. It's approach that I'm, I'm tired of seeing. Yeah, and I, and and that's what I you know you're giving us and our listeners a lot right now, and I, I really appreciate it. And and I think it's, it's definitely coming from you know your lived experience, but also you know your, your you know your passion to really make a change in this space to actually foster really effective solutions. And in that respect, I think this is the last kind of your subject. I'm going to give you the standard three questions we always ask our podcast guests. But I guess to finish off this line of questioning, are you do you sit around at all and say, goodness, why isn't anybody sending me a pitch on this problem or that problem? Do you think there's anything going on, again, October of 2023, that is underserved or people just may not be as paying attention to as, as, as much as they should be? I think we're lacking affordability and accessibility. And so 
I don't necessarily have the answer to that. And we've had multiple very academic and socially driven conversations around this need. But if you look, for instance, I'm a part of Nexus Insights with Bob Kramer. And, you know, you look at Nick's Forgotten Middle Study and you look at Nick and Nork and the research is there to say that we're missing the middle, you know, where we've mastered helping those with affluence who can pay for products and services, but how are we going to help the average individual and household age longer in a way that we're addressing lifespan and well span or health span and not just the years in their lives? How are we creating more affordable resource access to quality environments, quality food, medication management, care delivery when they need it, socialization to decrease social isolation, community engagement, transportation. There's just so much that we haven't tackled. If we can't afford to live in today's current senior living housing, for instance, what is available to us? How do we stay home or how do we, where do we move to? And how do we bring resources to those people really targeting all of the areas of need for a healthy well span? Yeah. And that's something that keeps me up at night too, Sarah. So thank you very much for saying that. And, you know, again, you know, thank you for your time on the podcast today. You've you've shared so much terrific information for aspiring entrepreneurs, people that are already developing solutions, people that are looking to better understand aging in the uh, aging technology space, which is so broad and, and can fall into so many different areas, just on the back of the fact that there are so many of us that are just going to be older, I mean, it's, it's the first time in the country that we're going to have some. Oh, by the way, I don't need to tell you those statistics because you know them already. So please don't put those stats <laughs> into a deck if you're sending it to Sarah. But I, again, we always ask our guests three questions with their own experience about their own experience in aging. And I'm wondering if you're open. Can I ask you those questions? Sure. Okay. Uh, but first, you before we do, to answer them. You can ask me. Them. You don't have to answer. No, you can say pass. But but. Um, but, you know, where can people find you? Where, where can, you know, if somebody's looking to get in touch with you or to get in touch with, some, you know, just pitch away at some of the things that, uh, that you have available, whether it be your staffing company or some of the venture firms you work with. Sure. So, you know, we've kind of talked about my continuum. It's easy for me to know where you fit into my areas of support and influence. It's not always easy to identify what I do, but if you think of me really helping the age tech startup, their product development, their product market fit, going to market and their fundraising strategy, also, you know, the UI, UX and understanding their business model. So I advise the age tech startups. I also help senior living providers, large corporations understand their innovation strategy around technology and the aging consumer. So that could be in senior living or senior care, but also large corporations have hired me to just understand who's that demographic that's coming in and what's that persona like, what technologies are helpful to bring better solutions to, to their customer base. And then of course, the third bucket is the funding bucket. So seed stage and, and also series A. With those three buckets, I realized during the pandemic, we were really all struggling with staffing. And so one area that we didn't talk about today was MezTel, but really MezTel came from analyzing 
that we could look at remote talent in a different way. We were all working from home. Many people were working from home. We understand the frontline caregivers were still very necessary, but where could we help to support roles that still had high turnover, still required a lot of expertise and experience and quality people to attract your mission in age tech or in senior living? And how can we do it in an affordable or cost-effective way while maintaining that retention? And so Mestel does that. And I invested in Mestel and came on as the operating partner. So kind of all of my three buckets, they all know that Mestel is a solution that you can utilize if it's helpful for you. Basically allows you to take any position that would be remote or um, virtual in the U.S. And we hire out of our office in Mexico, in Guadalajara, Mexico, quite sophisticated area. It's considered the Silicon Valley of Mexico. So we hire everything from engineers to senior living accountants, graphic designers. We have a lot of great opportunities to to find great talent, have them join your team that are on your mission. They are they feel a part of your team, but are supported by community that we've built in Mexico, and we provide great benefits and really a great community to help with retention because we noticed in senior living and in age tech there was just such turnover. And if you outsource, yes, you might have low cost labor, but that turnover is so great that you miss opportunities for consistency or for quality, and they're not often missionally aligned. And so in Mexico, they're on central time zone. They work on your team. They're highly talented individuals, and they're, they maintain your mission, vision, and values. And so that's really what we loved as a solution across those three categories. So I'd say if anyone wants to find me, they can find me on LinkedIn and also Thomas at meztal, M-E-Z-T-A-L.com. And if they need help in either the product development side, innovation strategy, or funding, I can bring in the right resource at that point. All right. I'm going to show, I'm going to see how I'm going to test your cultural competence here. That is Meztel spelled M-E-Z-T-A-L. And it's, I would guess it's Meztel.com, correct? Yes. Awesome. All right. The three questions. All right. So Sarah, question number one is when you think about how you've aged, What do you think has changed about you or grown with you that you really like about yourself? I think probably back to the first story that I told, I think that my passion around just the elders around me, the older people around me and the wisdom that I found from them and the excitement of the complexity of their lives and their stories, I think what became just enjoyable for me then became my life work and my mission. Just wait a minute. We have to do better. We have to do better as a society, as individuals, as caregivers, as family members. And I think the fact that I brought that passion just from a personal perspective into a professional perspective is probably what I carry the most with me. Well, and I think you just answered question number three, which is tell us if you've you've met somebody in your past that has been set a good example for you in aging, what you let off with that example. And I, I just think that's, that's well, so impressive. Well, I actually have a different answer. Well, he was, his name is Sheppy. And while well, he was motivating, I think it's that everyone in my tribe, as I grew older, had that example setting for me. I had a, I had multiple matriarchs in my family who taught me a lot about independence and strength and tenacity. I had a blind aunt who is 90 years old, still painting and living alone. It, she, you know, we just taught 
each other, how to overcome challenges and care for each other. Very caring, nurturing upbringing with a lot of elders. So yeah, just continuous mentorship along my lifespan. And it sounds like, you know, that really underlines the spirit of abundant aging that, you know, is so precious to United Church Homes and and to so many other people. But we're going to end with question number two, which is what has surprised you the most about you as you've aged? What has surprised me the most? I don't know. I think the importance of nurturing your mental health and your spiritual health and your overall all dimensions of wellness and not just physical health as you age. And it's not that I didn't consider that before, but I think I'm more mindful of it now. I have a hectic lifestyle. I'm on the road all the time. I love what I do for my, you know, I don't ever consider it work, but it's a lot of hours on with my passion on at all times. And I think that nurturing and fostering connection and interpersonal, you know, intimacy and also looking at mental health and breathing and finding space and finding healthy ways to live and not just, you know, we're human beings, right? Not doers where we we need to just also embrace. I think the overall embracing wellness kind of across all dimensions, I, I would say is probably the greatest it's not a surprise, but it's something that I constantly need to remind myself so that I don't just continue through life doing things. <laughs> I, and I think it's a wonderful story, a wonderful perspective. I'm so glad that you shared this, shared it with us and our audience. What a wonderful place to end. So Sarah, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We were in your debt. We just think, and we're looking forward to seeing more and more of the things you're going to be doing in the future. So thank you for being a guest on the show. But most especially, thanks to you, our listeners, for listening to this episode of The Heart of Aging, which is part of the Abundant Aging podcast series from from the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, which is part of United Church Homes. And we want to hear from you. Uh, What solutions are you working on in the age tech space? What issues are you facing or or that you've seen that that deserve new solutions uh, to address uh, longevity and healthy longevity? Who's your abundant aging hero? Tell us this and give us ideas for future episodes by visiting AbundantAgingPodcast.com. If you want to find out more about the Ruth Frost Parker Center, you can do so by visiting UnitedChurchHomes.org backslash Parker hyphen center. And Sarah, once again, you're on LinkedIn, MezTowel.com. Am I right on that? Yeah. Anything else? No, that's perfect. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to hearing other people's stories. I think abundant aging is a great theme for all of us to to keep an eye on. That's terrific. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.